What a great video and how inspiring. You know, I wouldn't have naturally thought all my life to ask my friends if they want to read the Bible with me. But maybe the answer's right in our hands. And so let's utilize that. We will be using um, that material in March, just to give you the heads up. In our gospel communities, we will be spending a couple of sessions looking at how do we actually do this. And we're actually going to be mock, mocking it out so that we can actually all get a flavor of what it would actually be like to walk through somebody. So that's coming up in March. Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Proverbs 1. For those of you that are new to Sovereign Grace, we're presently in a series on Proverbs. We're just in week two, so you have come at a good time. And the subtitle to our series is Wisdom That Works. And we chose that subtitle because that's exactly what we have in front of us. In the book of Proverbs, we have wisdom that works, wisdom that is from God himself, that is designed to help us with the skill of living well in this world. What we do is we sit near this scripture then as we stand on holy ground because it can completely change our lives and so we're going to be looking this morning at verses 8 through 19 but I'm actually going to read from verse 1 so that we understand the context this is the word of the Lord the Proverbs of Solomon son of David king of Israel to know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom. And instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like shoal, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird... But these men lie in wait for their own blood and set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Let's pray. Lord, your word is wonderful. And Lord, as we stand under it this morning, Lord, I pray, would you speak to us? Would we recognize that what we're listening to are your words? Lord, as we stand in awe of you, would we grow in the skill of living well right here in this world? And would it be all for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it was nearly 23 years ago now that Emma and I first got to visit Niagara Falls. 
it was right at the end of attending the pastor's college in the United States. Right at the end, we hired an RV with a family and their two small children. And we headed up to the U.S.-Canadian border. And our first stop was Niagara Falls. And oh my goodness, what an experience it was. I never forget when we got close to Niagara Falls, even the, the actual town of Niagara, you can see like smoke or what appeared to be smoke coming up for the ground. So you think, oh my goodness, the, something's on fire. And then as you get closer, you realize this isn't smoke. This is spray and this is mist coming from the ground. It's coming from where the falls come over the edge and all the mist comes up. And so as we got close, we parked the RV and we ran over to the edge where you can look over and see the falls. And what we saw, at least for me, simply took my breath away. Niagara Falls are massive. 600,000 gallons of water per second go over the edge. It's nearly a kilometer wide. It's 57 meters high. And all you can hear is, as it's just pouring over the edge, 600,000 gallons of water. And it's like peering over the edge. You just can't help but be in awe of what you're seeing. This thing is massive. The noise is loud. It is intense. It is great. We didn't even speak to each other for a while because you're just so busy looking and trying to take in what your eyes are seeing. But then I noticed down at the bottom of the falls, there was this boat and it appeared to have people on it. And I thought to myself, I need to get myself on that boat. And it was for my and fortune, it was actually a tourist tour on a boat. It's called the Maid of the Mist, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls. And as soon as I discovered that we could go on this boat, that is what I wanted to do. So we found the signs that took us to the Maid of the Mist. It's actually a staircase that takes you all the way down to the base, and there you wait. They give you a poncho, first of all. You know, it's not the most attractive thing in the world, but you pop it on. You think it's not even raining, but anyway, you pop it on. And everybody gets onto the boat, and this boat starts to take you all the way to the edge of the falls. So the falls are like here, and it's driving you right into the falls. And I was inspired by Niagara Falls at the top, but at the bottom, I was even more standing in awe of what I was seeing. And the closer you get to Niagara Falls, the louder it becomes, and the louder the engines of the boat come as well, because the boat, these diesel engines that are chugging away, is trying to send you right into the falls. And as you get close, they basically go full speed ahead. You can hear the diesel engines rum, rum, churning away. You hear the falls coming over the edge. You're just being sprayed with all the mist in front of you. And I'll never forget As the engines are full tilt, you can't move forward because the falls are pushing you back. So you're just stationary. And I went right to the front of the boat and I'm just standing in awe of what I'm seeing. All of this water, 600,000 gallons of water coming over every second, a kilometer wide. I am in awe of this thing. Just standing in awe of the greatness of Niagara Falls. And as Brandon introduced us to the book of Proverbs last week, and showed us that the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom, I couldn't help but think back to that moment that I had on the Maid of the Mist. See, as I stood on the front of that boat on that day, I was not experiencing what we call servile fear. I was not experiencing the concern of a slave before a harsh taskmaster. I wasn't like afraid for my life or afraid of being abused by somebody else. It wasn't servile fear that I was experiencing. It was what we call filial fear. 
That sense of awe and amazement of something much greater than you. Something that could surely wipe you out in a moment, and yet you feel slightly attracted to it because it's so incredible. And that is the type of fear that we are to have if we truly want to grow and understand wisdom. It is called the fear of the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson writes about it this way. He says, The fear of God is that indefinable mixture of reverence, adoration, pleasure, and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what He has done for us. That's so true. It's when we stand in our lives at the corner of our boats before God, and it's that strange mixture of awe and adoration that you are incredible in every way, and pleasure and wonder as we just stand before Him, realizing He is truly great. That is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is where wisdom begins because it's as you stand before the greatness of God that you shrink down to your true size. You realize who He really is and who you really are. And that's where wisdom begins. And my friends, it is this same God, incredibly, this same King of kings and Lord of lords, this same ancient of days and wonderful counselor that is pulling up a seat alongside us this morning as a church and as individuals to share with each one of us his great words of wisdom. We don't sit here this morning as we stand by the edge of his falls just to hear some wise sage or Yoda giving us a few words or some really intelligent human being. We stand before the edge of God himself as he pulls up a seat alongside us and says, Hey, listen, I want to give you some wisdom. We are being addressed by Almighty God this morning. So I have three points, three points that are clearly laid out for us in this text as the wonderful counsel of the Ancient of Days draws alongside us. And they're all designed to help us see the way of wisdom. That's what this book is all about, trying to help us see how it will go well for us. And as you pay attention, what you realize, it's also helping you see how it will go well for others as well. Three points then. Number one, the offer of wisdom. And let's read together from the Lord, verses 8 and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. It's important to note right up front that God is speaking to us here through the means of a father addressing his son. This is the voice of a father drawing alongside his children. You see, some of you here will have grown up in Christian homes and you will have grown up with the benefit of a mom and a dad that has taken you to God's word and taught you the ways of the the Lord from his word. What a gift that is to be trained in the way we should go as a child. It's the call of God on Christian parents and some of you have grown up in that environment. What a blessing that is. Some of you have not grown up in that environment. Well, thank the Lord then that he's brought us into a church family where we all have spiritual fathers and mothers around us. Others that are older than us. Others that are more mature in the faith. Others that understand the word better than we do. That's what pastors do. It's what group leaders do. It's what wise and mature Christians do to one another. We bring God's word to bear on each other's lives. How kind of the Lord. Whether you've grown up in a Christian home or not, to give us a spiritual home, with spiritual mums and dads to help us. And yet, 
as God addresses us here, what he helps, wants to help us understand is that it is him addressing us here. God himself is addressing you and I as his children. This King of kings and Lord of lords, this everlasting Father, this Prince of peace, this wonderful counselor is drawing up a seat alongside us this morning to instruct us. And he tells us, listen, don't forsake my instruction. Don't move on from my teaching. Why? Well, verse 9. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. I love that. You see, when we follow the ways of the Lord... And when we learn the ways of wisdom and apply them in our lives, there is no doubt an internal reality that takes place when we do that. There is no doubt an internal reality that if we walk in the way of wisdom, quite frankly, things will go well for us. If we listen to this word and we heed these words, it will naturally go well for us. You see, I don't know what sometimes we think about God. God is not out to wreck our lives and spoil our lives and hurt our lives. He is a faithful father that he wants it to go well for you. And so he says, hey, heads up, I know you. I know the way all this works. In fact, I know all things. This is the way it's going to go well for you. Makes sense, right? So there is an internal blessing when we walk in the way of the Lord because quite frankly, we will just be walking in God's gracious path of life. And so it will naturally go well for us. But there's also an external reality. That when we walk in the way of wisdom, something takes place. And that's what he's talking about here. When you and I walk in the way of wisdom, here's what happens. You become attractive to those around you. And you become attractive even to people beyond the walls of the church. See, the garland for your head that he talks about here in verse 9 is basically the victor's wreath. It's akin to a beautiful crown that you get on your head when you win a race. And the pendant for your neck is also a mark of prestige. It's a, a mark of respect of what you understand, what you have done, how you view life. And what he's telling you here is, listen, if you will walk in the path of wisdom, if you will follow the ways of the Lord, then those very things will cause you to be attractive to others because it would be like they're seeing a crown on your head and pendants around your neck. You will be attractive to them because there will be something radically different about your life. And my friends, this is important, isn't it? Because as Christians in the New Testament, you realize we are called to make the gospel attractive through our lives, are we not? It is through our lives, the way we speak, our attitudes, our behaviors, that God has made it that that will attract people to the very gospel that we then proclaim. Our lives, they matter. In 2 Corinthians 8.21 Paul says, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. What he's helping us see there is, listen, we don't just aim just to honor the Lord, but we need to understand as we honor the Lord, we do want people to notice. We want people to be attracted to the very gospel that we proclaim. We want them to see there's something different about you Christians. That's why he echoes it in, to the Philippians in chapter 4 verse 5. When he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? 
Because we live in a very unreasonable world. <laughs> you only have to go on Facebook to see that really quickly. If you put something on that people don't like, because it's unreasonable. It's quick. It's faceless. Let's it. You're having it. You're having it. Let's go. And he's Paul is saying, don't be like that. Let your reasonableness be seen by everybody. Let them see something different in you forbearance and patience and kindness and goodness because your behavior, it, it matters. Peter tells us outright in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He tells us then flat out, listen, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Watch the way you live. Why? Because the way you live can attract people to the gospel, and it will be some people who will hear you proclaim the gospel that will then give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and will thank God on the day of visitation. You see the way it works? Our lives, our attitudes, our words, our time, it really does matter according to the Lord. And so right up front, he tells us, listen, all these words I'm writing to you as your father. I want you to obey them and walk in them and not forsake them. Because if you walk in them, it will go well for you. But more than that, people beyond your walls will see something different in your life. You will be an ambassador for Christ in the way you live. They will be drawn to you in big part because of the way you're behaving. Wisdom offers us so much, and it's attractive, isn't it? We shouldn't be reading this book, and I don't believe any Christian reads the book of Proverbs and goes, yeah, nah, I don't really fancy that. There's something that we understand. I want this. How can I walk in the goods of lady wisdom? How can I be attracted to this? How can I model this in my life? It is an attractive gift from the Lord. And yet it also comes with a warning. Because although there is indeed a path of wisdom, there is also a path of folly that we will be enticed down and that we will want to go down at different times. And that's my second point, the warning of wisdom. There is indeed a great offer of wisdom, but there is also a warning to us that there will be some that will seek to entice us away from this wise path. Look again at verse 10 through 19. It says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, like shoal, let us swallow them alive, and whole like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. You know, at first glance, at least for me as I was studying this text this week, these verses can seem somewhat underwhelming and anticlimactic. 
I mean, we've just established that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So you're standing there at Niagara Falls. Okay, I get it. I'm drawn into the text. The fear of the Lord is where it all begins. Oh my goodness, his wisdom comes into my life like gallon after gallon of water of wisdom. And he's told us then, listen, listen up to me. Because these words will help you. They will change your life. They will change what you display to those around you. And you say, okay, I'm listening, Lord. I'm leaning in. And it would appear on first glance that what he's telling us here then, the first words out of his mouth is, and don't join gangs. Really? Is that the best you got? Don't join gangs. And in particular, don't join gangs that lie in wait for the blood of others. Well, thank you very much. I don't think I've ever done that in my life. It can appear on the face of it. What exactly has this got to do with me? But we're going to discover that the Proverbs work like that quite a lot. First glance, they often don't make a lot of sense. But it's when you look again that you realize this actually has a lot more to do with me and you than we first realize. See, to really understand and discern this proverb, you have to understand two very important things. The first thing you have to understand is who these sinners are. In verse 10, he tells us, My son, if sinners entice you. Well, who are those sinners? Because aren't we all sinners? Don't we all just still sin? Isn't that a fact of all of our lives? We know that unbelievers sin by very nature, but don't believers sin as well? So do we just need to guard against like anybody ever enticing you? Is this just talking about everyone, or is this talking about something else? Well, the answer is that this is talking about something else. Bruce Waltke, in his commentary, explains that the structure of this Hebrew helps us to understand that what he's actually talking about here is habitual and chronic sinners. Those are the people that he wants us to ensure that we not be enticed by. Chronic and habitual sinners. He's talking here about men and women that are opposed to the Lord, that aren't interested in the Lord, that are really going gung-ho against the Lord. In an extreme case, it'd be like the Godfather, you know. It's just like somebody that's just out there, not interested in God. And God is telling us, listen, be very careful that you not be enticed by them. And if they try and entice you, do not consent. These sinners then are habitual and chronic sinners. You have to understand that to understand the text. And secondarily, you have to understand how this scenario might actually play out in our lives. I mean, if it doesn't really play out in our life, then kind of what good is it? If it doesn't have a lot to do with us, then how can we even relate to it? Well, Here's how it plays out have to pay attention to the words. God is not just talking here about being enticed by those who lie in wait for the blood of others. Verse 11. Because in verse 19, he widens that out a lot greater than just individuals who lie in wait for the blood of others. This is what he says, verse 19. He says, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust He's saying, don't be enticed by people, not only those who lie in wait for the blood of others, but more than that, all those who are greedy for unjust gain. All those who are keen then in their lives to succeed, even though that means stepping on the throat of someone else. 
Never be enticed by them. You see, as soon as you realize that, the, the application does broaden somewhat. Now, still, I would argue that for us as Christians, in the natural, these are the very people that we would instinctively keep away from. Are they not? I mean, these are the type of people that your mom and dad, when you little, say, don't go near them, son. They're not the people that you want to be with. These people that succeed by stepping on someone else are instinctively the people that I think we don't spend time with. It's the bully then of the school playground. The bully that dominates the pack and he's just willing to hurt anybody and push anybody down so that everybody can think he's amazing and he can walk around and do whatever he wants. It's the dodgy salesperson that we never want to buy a car off because we know we're going to be buying a lemon. He's just constantly ripping people off, buys cars, pretends they're okay, does them up a little bit, and then sells you them. I mean, we don't want to buy a car off that person, but likewise, we don't really want to be with that person, do we? Because we don't trust them. They're dodgy. Or the financer, the financer that promises so much that effectively says, listen, come with my company, we'll do you good. And clearly he is doing quite well. I mean, he drives a great car and has a great house. But in your heart of hearts, you know he's doing it all unethically. He's succeeding by standing on the head of others. He's succeeding by damaging others. He's turning a blind eye to tax implications. He's turning a blind eye to different issues, even though ultimately we all get hurt by that. But he doesn't care because he just wants to succeed even when he steps on someone else. Or the neighbor whose curtain is always twitching in the street. Every neighborhood has one, don't they? Every street has one. Somebody that's constantly looking out the window. And then when you're on the way to the car, they're like, oh, David, David, <laughs> yes, what's up? Have you heard about Sue? Everybody has some type of neighbor that just wants to tell you all the gossip of the street, everything that's going on. She or he is happy to be raised up in at least her or his eyes by standing on the throat of others and slandering them publicly to every neighbor that will listen. We all instinctively think, I think, as Christians and in the natural, understand these are the people that we are to keep away from. So why is this proverb here? What's the point? Well, here's the point, my friends. There are certain moments in all of our lives, even as Christians, when the enticements of these type of people, I believe, become far more inviting to us. When we do instinctively start to think, maybe I should go with them because maybe they will do me good. And when we are tempted and vulnerable to think that, I believe, are the moments when envy and or retaliation begin to emerge from our hearts. When envy and retaliation start to emerge from our hearts, I would put to you, even as Christians, you are very, very vulnerable to be enticed by people that just a few months prior you would have never even dreamed of spending any time with. So the bully in the school playground suddenly starts to be attractive in a way that he never was before. See, when you become a Christian, for each and every one of us in the room, when you became a Christian, the power and penalty of sin was broken in your life. That's great news, right? 
When you became a Christian and Jesus said, it is finished. It was finished for you. He paid the penalty of your sin in full. And because of that, sin no longer has dominion over you. The chains to sin have been broken in your life. The power and penalty of sin has no hold over your life as a Christian. That's the good news. Yet, its presence remains. The presence of sin is still there, is it not? It's one of the sad realities when you become a Christian. I'm going to be perfect now. And within an hour, you still find yourself jealous or angry. And you think, what's this? Well, because its power and penalty has been broken, but its presence remains. And it is when envy and or retaliation start to emerge themselves that we are profoundly vulnerable to being enticed by sinners. Let me explain. The bully at school, the bully in the playground that just a few months before you would have had nothing to do with, starts to become attracted to you. Why? Because you're fed up of being by yourself. You envy the comfort of other friends. I mean, everybody else seems to have friendships, but you're the only guy or the only girl that is walking around the playground all by yourself. You're always on the end of ridicule, and you've had enough of that. You start to envy comfort. You start to envy friendships. It becomes an idol in your life. It becomes all-consuming. All I want is just to have friendships. How hard is it? And then the bully says, hey, I can give you that. Come with me. I'll be your friend. And suddenly you are enticed in a very different way. You never were two weeks ago. But now through envy, you crave what he can offer you. You crave this in your lives. And so your temptation is, I just want to go with him. Because yes, it will probably hurt other people, but at least I'll have identity and friends. Or the dodgy financer who promises so much. You know he's unethical. You know he's not somebody that you should probably be dealing with as a Christian. And yet you've been on realestate.com for the 20th time that week. And you're just seeing these houses, and you can't afford them. I mean, how are you going to afford to stay in, in this city? How's this going to work in your life? And, you know, your wages don't seem to be going up as much as everybody else. And, and this guy seems to be pretty wealthy. And you start to envy what you don't have. Why do I not have all these things? Why can't I push on like everybody else? I mean, even people that don't know Jesus seem to be doing really well for themselves. Why can't I? And you start to envy and crave just getting up in the world, whether it be a house or a car or whatever it be, and suddenly this dodgy financer that you wanted nothing to do with a few months ago, well, but now seems a bit more attractive. Because <laughs> maybe you'll help me get what I want. And so, you know, I probably wouldn't go with him for long, but, you know, half a poison pill won't kill me, right? I mean, I, maybe I, I don't know for sure he's not unethical. I just instinctively think he's, he's probably not. So, so maybe I'll go with him. Because I desperately want to move up. You see how it works? Or maybe your issue isn't so much envy. Maybe the challenge becomes pride and or retaliation. See, here's the reality, my friends. There will be different times in our lives as Christians that we will be hurt by other people. You know, the church is the dearest place on earth. It's great. But even within the church, there will be times when you will be hurt by others. They will sin against you. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when it happens. And sometimes you'll be doing the one sinning. My friends, 
When we join a local church, we have to understand that there will be times that we'll be hurt by other people. And the Bible anticipates that. And so the Bible, poured out by God in his wisdom, gives us clear instruction of what we're to do when we are hurt by others. We have two options. Number one, we overlook it. We genuinely overlook it for their good and the glory of God. And we just act before them. We don't even talk about it. We just act before them now as if it's never happened. We just overlook it for the glory of the Lord. That's option one. Or option two, we go to our brother or sister that has sinned against us and we say, hey, listen, I just need to talk to you about it because when you said that, you did that, it, it hurt me. And I want you to know because I want us to talk about this. I need to be reconciled to you. I want us to be able to work this through. They are the two options in the Bible that Jesus himself gives us. And yet sometimes in our sinfulness, when we are hurt, we don't like option A or B. We like option C that's not in the Bible. Option C, where we take that hurt, and because we're proud and we want to retaliate, we start to use corrupt talk. So instead of going to the person at all, I'm not going to go to the person. I'm going to go to everybody else and tell them what this person has done to me. It's what the Bible calls slander and gossip. Paul placards it before our eyes in Ephesians chapter 4, helping us understand that corrupt talk looks like gossip and slander. And instead of then dealing with the person to try and overlook their sin or deal with their sin, we instead evolve to corrupt talk because we are hurt and because we are angry. And here's what happens. You do profound damage. Profound damage to those individuals and more than likely profound damage to the church in the process. Profound damage. You know, the old English proverb of sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Just to give you the heads up, that wasn't one of God's. It's a load of baloney. You know what? It's just nonsense. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Are you serious? Have you been like talking to anybody recently? Sticks and stones will hurt your bones. Words will kill you. Words can do you great damage. Words can hurt people for years, well after a broken bone is healed. Words can do people profound damage. In Proverbs 18 verse 21, God himself tells us death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life. Your words have the ability to build people up and bring life to them or to damage them and bring death to them, to profoundly hurt them. And yet in our hurt... Instead of following after the Lord, we can have such a temptation to retaliate. And here's one of the challenges of that type of sin. One of the challenges, as we read here in verse 14, is that this type of sin has a tendency to recruit others. Have you ever noticed that? Sin recruits, doesn't it? Sin always recruits. Why is it the complainers find other complainers? Because it recruits. Why is it the gossips find other gossips? Because they recruit. And that is exactly what we read about right here in verse 14. Pay attention. It says, throw in your lot among us, we will all have one purse. Sin recruits. Just come with me. Just I need to talk to you about something. I just need to vent. I just need to share. We will all share from one purse. Sin damages us, my friends. Sin always damages people. It recruits, it pulls people in. And when we refuse to deal with envy in our hearts and or retaliation, we are always vulnerable to being enticed by 
other sinners. But it damages. You see, when we sin in this way, it always damages. It damages our relationship with the Lord and that it grieves Him. It damages our relationship with others because we hurt them. But actually, as God pulls up a seat alongside us in this text, He wants to help us understand one of the main people it damages is actually you. It's yourself. Satan convinces you that you won't be damaged at all. But God draws up a seat alongside you and says, no, actually, if you sin in these ways, you will be damaged. Verses 17 and 18. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood and set an ambush for their own lives. Now, in our sin, we often think that if we can just go for it for some time, if we can just deal with other things for some time, half a poison pill won't kill me. But God looks us in the eye and says, no, actually, here's what happens. When you refuse to deal with these things and you sin and you're enticed by others in the process, the very net that you lay out thinking that it may be for others is the very net that will trap you. It'll take you out. It'll damage you. See, my friends, the harsh reality is that sin is guilty of false advertising. Sin is always guilty of false advertising. It promises so much, but in actual fact, it is seeking to trap you. You are setting a trap for yourself. You think it'll be fine. It's not the end of the world. And God looks at you in the eye and says, no, this thing will take you out. It is guilty of false advertising. One commentator put it this way. He says, evil tastes good, but take note, evil always leads to nausea and vomiting. So true. Satan says, listen, just come with me. It'll be okay. And your heart instinctively says, you know what? I think, yes, I do feel wronged. I feel envious. It'll be fine. But it doesn't deliver as promised. It always comes with nausea and vomiting. Ravi Ravi Zacharias said it this way. He said, sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. Given what happened in his life, what a monument of sadness that verse is. What a monument of sadness his quote is. Because he's exactly right, but he refused to actually do it himself. Sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. And so God, in His grace and mercy, pulls up a seat alongside us this morning to give us this loving and wise instruction. And what wisdom it is, isn't it? The everlasting Father and Prince of Peace and wonderful Counselor pulls up a seat alongside us and says, Hey, listen, I love you. I'm for you. I know how this works. So I need you to understand the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. It's only as you stand in front of my majesty and splendor and greatness and all that I am and all that I've done for you that you will truly shrink down to your true size and realize that I'm at the center of it all. And I want to give you instruction. I want to help you. I want to guide you in in your life as your father, as your friend, as your redeemer. I, I want to help you. And so as I give you this instruction, listen, don't forsake it. 
Don't move on from it as if it's no big deal. Don't just cast it to one side. But I want to exhort you to, to, to listen to it and, and treasure it. And if sinners entice you, then do not consent. Do not go along with their wild ways. Don't get involved in that type of companionship. Why? Well, because it will damage you. It will hurt you. It will cause you pain. And I'm your father and I love you and I want it to go well for you. Don't do How kind of the Lord, isn't it? How kind of the Lord to pull up a seat alongside us and give us these incredible words of wisdom. And already, right at the start of the book of Proverbs, you already see two very clear paths emerging. One path, which is the way of wisdom, the way of the Lord, where it goes well for us, and where we have a garland for our head and a pendant for our neck, and others are attracted to the gospel as a result. Or instead, the pathway of folly, where we reject the instruction of the Lord, we do something quite different, and it never goes well for us. That's going to be our choice. Which one do you want to do? Wisdom or folly? And where that leads us, I think, just in closing, is with the third point, the hope of wisdom. See, I doubt there is a Christian among us that doesn't want to walk in this way of wisdom. It's so attractive, isn't it? Who amongst us doesn't want life to go well for us? Who amongst us doesn't want to be a good witness to those around us? Who amongst us doesn't want to save themselves from actually trapping themselves and injuring themselves? You know, we, we are instinctively understand, I want to walk in this way of wisdom. How kind of the Lord to give it to us? And yet the question that I think we still have to wrestle with is how? How do we do it? As we said before, when I became a Christian, the power and penalty of sin was broken in my life, but its presence still remains. So how can I ever choose like this way of wisdom when my spirit chooses that, but my body and my flesh often choose folly? It wants to go a different way. It wants to go a stupid way. How am I ever, oh wretched man that I am, how am I ever going to choose this way of wisdom and actually see it work in my life? What hope do we have? Well, I have good news for you, my friend. We have every hope. Every hope to be able to choose the way of wisdom. Because here's our hope. It's a person and a name. And that person and name is Jesus. Jesus is our hope of being able to choose this wise and righteous path. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to this earth. And when he came to this earth, he didn't do so to lie in wait for our blood. Although he could have. He could have come to this earth knowing that when you arrived, you would be hostile in mind towards him. You'd be uninterested in the Lord. You would reject the king while taking the kingdom. He could have come to this earth to lie in wait for your blood and at the right time removed you from his very presence. But in his grace and his mercy, 2,000 years ago, he came not to lie in wait for your blood, but instead to shed his own blood for you. That's what he did at the cross. He gave his life away as a ransom for many. He shed his own blood in our place. So that we can have life and that in abundance. So that we could be forgiven of our sin with our sin being removed as far as the east is from the west. So that we could be redeemed and reconciled into a relationship with God that we were always made for. Not just for today, 
but for all eternity, knowing that heaven will wonderfully ultimately be our home. And then maybe at the pinnacle of it all, he also says that it will be through faith in him that he will indeed come into our hearts to do what? To empower us to obey his word. See, in John chapter 14, when Jesus looks the disciples in their eyes and tells them that he will not leave them as orphans. Oh my, what a powerful statement it is. Because he's helping them understand, guys, Although I'm about to die in your place and then will rise again and ascend to the right hand of the Father, I won't leave you as orphans. But instead, having given you all these words for you to obey, all these things for you to do in your lives, I will come back to you. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, both the Father and the Son will make their home in you. So I am going as for a little while, but I will return and I won't just be with you, I will be in you. Why? Well, to empower you to obey my words, to give you grace and splendor and power to actually follow the ways of the Lord. Listen, here is our hope, church. Our hope in all of this, of walking in the way of wisdom, is in understanding that the very author of these words is the now the one who lives in you to get them done. I have no better news for you from that. You are sounding very English in this moment by your silence. He is in you to help you walk in this path. Is that not good news? It changes everything. You are not alone. But the very one who authors these words and pours out these words of wisdom over the falls of who he is into our lives is the very one who came to this earth not to lie and wait for our blood, but to shed his own blood for us. And now through the finished work of what he has done, he comes into your life through the Holy Spirit and says, hey, let me help you apply what I'm telling you. So we have every hope (laughs) because we're not alone. The author is here to empower us. John Owen, in picking this up, He says the following in one of his books. He says, The duties that God requires of us are simply not in proportion to the strength we possess in ourselves. My friends, it's so true, isn't it? You can read the Bible dryly and you think, Oh, I haven't got any hope. There's no way. Well, good news. By yourself, you don't have any hope. But that is exactly why Jesus came to live in your heart and in your life to empower you to follow his words. He hasn't left you by himself. The Spirit of the risen Christ lives in you so that you can say, as with Paul, that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Apostle Paul knew in his life, I haven't got any chance of being able to do all these things for you. I haven't got any chance in my life. I mean, I'm still a bit of a wretched man, to be honest. I haven't got any chance in and of myself to try and muster something up to get this job done. However, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ Jesus is in my life, he's in my heart, and as I run to him for help, he will strengthen me and help me to obey these words. So brothers and sisters, what is your hope? What is your hope of walking in this way of wisdom? Here's your hope. Your hope is in the reality that the one who authored these words, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, Jesus himself is the same one who came after you, not to lie and wait for your blood, but to shed his blood for you. And through the Spirit, he is now in you to empower you to apply these words.
So I want to exhort you, church. Keep looking to him. Keep sitting under his word. Keep sitting at his feet and allowing these words of wisdom to come into your life and in your heart. And then as you grasp them, ask him for help to apply them. You can't do it by yourself. But you can do all things through him who strengthens you. Look to him for help and aid as you seek to apply these in your life. And may this way of wisdom then truly be your own. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we've seen this morning, there is no way we can walk in this way of wisdom by ourselves. Lord, you speak such wisdom to us, but there is no way in and of our own lives that we're going to be able to walk in this. Lord, we are sinful people. Our hearts are drawn to other things like envy and retaliation at different times in our lives. But Lord, in your mercy and in your grace, you have given us the greatest gift of all. You have given us yourself. So, Lord, would the cry of our hearts then be, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Would you help us, Lord, and aid us, Lord? And would this way of wisdom then be our own? In Jesus' name.